Well, why, why shouldn't they be cheap? Why should you have to pay eighty pounds for some ink? Because that's the business model. Exactly. Well, you have to make a margin somewhere. Like, have you? Oh, yes. <laughs> Go out and change the business model. Start your own printer company where they cost yes. five thousand quid and the ink is free. Yes. Stop whining. <laughs> <laughs> Smashing Security, episode 289, Printer Peeves, Health Data Hangups, and Twitter Hustles, with Carol Terrio and Graham Cluley. Hello, hello, and welcome to Smashing Security, episode 289. My name's Graham Cluley. And I'm Carol Terrio. And this week, Carol, we're joined by a special guest who yes. has returned to the hot seat this week. Rory Kathleen Jones, welcome to the show, Rory. Great to be here. I just could not keep away. You know what it's like. <laughs> You've just flown in from Berlin, I believe. Well, yeah, I have been uh, at home maybe 36 hours, but I'm still recovering from the experience uh, because Berlin is one great city. And um, I've, yeah. got, I've got stuff to tell you about it later. Uh, Ooh, okay. I don't think I've got your files, but I might have your files and all the secrets of your life will unfold before you. Oh, my God. Well, before we get to that, <laughs> let's thank this week's sponsors, Bitwarden, Collide, and the Cybersecurity Inside Podcast. It's their support that helps us give you this show for free. Now, coming up in today's show, Graham, what do you got? Oh, I'm going to be talking about the worst thing ever. Yep, I've really worked it out. The worst thing ever in IT. <laughs> okay, um, I look forward to that. Roy, what about you? I'm going to be talking about health data. Why are we not allowed to share our health data for essential research without an awful lot of bureaucracy and time wasting? <laughs> okay, sounds fun. And I will bring us into the Twitter Musk Mudge drama. All this and much more coming up on this episode of Smashing Security. Now, chums, chums, I want to ask you a question. What, in your opinion, is the worst problem in IT? What is the worst thing about computers and technology, do you believe? Isn't it the bum on the seat between the keyboard and the screen or something? Oh, well, Pepcac, the problem yeah, existing between keyboard and chair, the right. fleshy human. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, that that can be a trendy thing to blame for all IT problems. Any other <laughs> theories? Ransomware? Business email compromise. That's all fine. It is the automatic software update that is still stuck 16 hours after you first activated. Yeah, yes. I went to bed. I got up. It's still going on. It's having a nervous breakdown. My son got a new laptop from, well, he's just started a new school and he's got a new laptop and it, it started installing some update. And it just said, um, don't turn me off, it said. And it said that for about five hours. <laughs> I thought, what is it doing? Is it even connected to the internet? I'm not sure if it is or not. But no, none of these are actually as big as the worst problem of all, the one that's been staring us in the face for the last 40 plus years. Okay. And it is that printers are shit. Oh, uh, now that, yeah, yeah, you, you, you've got it. You have got it. Yeah. I don't know if I agree. Okay. Okay. What? You're going to have to convince me. Well, I think they're really useful, right? Well, yeah, they, they would be useful if they worked. Okay. But printers don't work. If you've ever worked on an IT help desk, chances are you've spent more of your time trying to fix printer issues than anything else. If you're not lucky enough to have an IT help desk inside your home, uh, you've probably <laughs> been struggling with the vendor's IT help desk instead. Constant phone calls coming through asking why printers aren't working, why 
something has come out smudged? Why isn't printed on both sides of the paper? How come it's printed out down in the accounts department? You just don't understand printers. I worked with printers. I used to have to like print off like these packets to basically spam mm-hmm. mail to people. <laughs> so Did you? Out. It was me. And I would print out, I was like 25, I don't know. And I was printing you out. You faxing people as well. No. <laughs> Is that you who's doing the fax spam? But the printer would always get stuck. And I learned how to always fix. I was like the printer queen. Like people would be like, crawl, the printer's not working. I would find the paper in that crazy place, the shred <laughs> that was blocking everything from working. It meant that we didn't have to call the technician. You could spend hours trying to get that tiny little piece of paper out between the cogs inside your... you might. Took me about 10 minutes. Very good at these things. Anyway, carry on, carry on. I think computer technology in general has moved on leaps and bounds over the years, but printers are still stuck in the Stone Age. They even look (laughs) like they were designed by the people who built Stonehenge. I can imagine ancient Britons lugging stones from the hills of Wales the behest of Neolithic druids, chipping away at them for 1,500 years, making them into heavy oblongs with a paper feed tray, pulling them on rollers made of tree trunks to the car parks of Epson and Cannon. Graham's opened up his thesaurus. But the question is, why are you still printing, Graham? Well, well, I would... Don't print. Well, I would... What do you need to print? Are you one of those people who who write something and then prints out 400 pages? no, no. No, I'm not. I I try to print something probably every three months. Right? <laughs> oh, that's it. You're not in practice. Exactly. I don't do the necessary voodoo. Yeah. I don't have a human sacrifice to make the print at work. Do you have a little oil droplet machine to make sure it's all <laughs> working perfectly? Occasionally, <laughs> I go somewhere where they demand a printout. Of the t- oh, no, you can't bring a smartphone because it could be a photograph of someone's it's what? How well how's this any different? But anyway, this this happened. This seems to happen to me a lot. I hate printers. Ink costs too much. Ink always needs to be replaced, even though I only use them every three months. Mm. It's terrible connectivity. Doesn't work half the time, and you feel forced to buy a new printer because the old one's having so many problems. Uh, because you think, well, it'll actually be cheaper to buy a new printer which comes with three new ink cartridges <laughs> than buy some cartridges. ink <laughs> cartridges separately. <Yeah. laughs> and. The old ink cartridges don't work with a new printer. Are you okay? Were you trying to print this morning that didn't go well and you decided to use this as your soapbox? I was doing exactly that. That is what was happening to me. And it was a complete nightmare. Well, I've got a confession. We have two printers in our house. One in my wife's incredibly efficient office from which she runs the world, (laughs) one in my cubbyhole. And about three years ago, I got bored with the one in my cubbyhole with all Mm. those issues that you suggested. Mm. I I ran out of ink. I couldn't be bothered to replace it. It still sits there, and I just wirelessly print off my wife's printer. And it's her fault if things go wrong. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it's great. You're a very lucky man Mm -hmm. because most printers, uh, you know, they're temptingly cheap. Because they're sold at a loss, and the manufacturers make their money back by selling those ruddy ink cartridges. It's like razors being super cheap and the blades being the markup. I think you're totally being over the top here. Really, really. Really? Yeah. I don't have these problems at all. I've had the same printer for five years, no issues. No issues. It's just I've got the problem. No, no, you've got the obvious answer. (laughs) Just send it round to Carol (laughs) and she'll print it for you. And now, now, Rory. Now, 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 now. <laughs> so, so my printer, despite having only been used about seven times in the last 18 months, 
has run out of ink. I wonder what the problem and is. And <laughs> woe betide me if I decide I don't want to spend £80 on some new ink cartridges and try and use these sort of generic ink cartridges because, you know, whoa, 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 they, then it's not oh, going to Oh, did you do that. that? Did you do that? Did you try and save a few quid? I admit I have done that sort of thing in the past, yes. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, it, it just ends up a, a nightmare, doesn't it? It ends up horrendous because the printer manufacturers, they say, well, only our ink cartridges properly protect your printer from, I don't know what, malicious spiked ink cartridges containing malware or bad printing or something like that. So so they've stuck these microchips and electric gubbins onto the ink cartridges themselves, which takes away room that could have been used for ink. Almost like a walled garden, right? Not letting different microchips coming in. Well, of course it is. And they don't want you using other people's ink cartridges. Now, one of the manufacturers which does this is HP. Mm -hmm. And if you had an HP printer and you dared to use an ink cartridge that wasn't made by HP, maybe everything was going swimmingly. Maybe everything had been going fine for the last couple of years. You're using these other people's ink cartridges. La-di-da, everything's wonderful. And then one day, you get an error message on your printer saying cartridge problem. One or more cartridges appears to be damaged. Remove them and replace with new cartridges. And you're thinking, what, 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 what's all this about? I just want to print. I was printing fine last night. Why can't I print anymore? With my cheap, cheap-ass ink cartridges I've bought. Yeah. Well, well, why, why shouldn't they be cheap? Why should you have to pay £80 for some ink? Because that's it's, the business it, model. Exactly. Well, you've got to make a margin somewhere. <laughs> and, like, <have> you, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Go okay. out and change the business model. Start your own printer company where they cost yes. 5,000 quid and the ink is free. Yes, stop whining. (laughs) In this particular case, HP, and unbeknownst to its users, updated its printer's firmware with something called dynamic security. Uh When was this? When was this? This was a few years ago. They rolled this out to lots and lots of printers. Mm -hmm. But it did say in the small print, the purpose of dynamic security is to protect HP's innovations in intellectual property, maintaining the integrity of our printing systems, ensuring the best customer printing experience, and protect users from counterfeit and third-party ink cartridges. I know they're third-party ink cartridges. I just want to print something a little bit cheaper. Don't you realise this is the same model applies to your car. Do you go to the show, you know, the no, car manufacturer to do your servicing, or do you go to Bob down the street who can do it at half price? Or, Crow, imagine this. Imagine you've bought a car mm-hmm. and the manufacturer says, well, you should only really use Ford petrol. You should only use Volkswagen petrol. Mm-hmm. And you try and fill it with someone else's petrol. It goes and grinds to a halt. Or if your car reports to you that it's run out of petrol when it actually hasn't run out of petrol, because that's what some of these ink cartridges do. They tell you they've run out, and in fact, they haven't. Or they say, we haven't got very much cyan left. Are you dehydrated so or something? <laughs> <laughs> like My printer is. <laughs> so people complained. Uh, when HP pushed out this firmware update, that they were no longer able to print. <laughs> you, like Napoleon, were leading the charge, no I, doubt. <laughs> <laughs> so like, people were saying, look, uh, legitimate HP cartridges cost more to buy than a brand new printer, albeit not a brand new HP printer. But, you know, you could just go out and buy a brand new printer. And HP just, you know, the, the problem is that you should in a way, install these firmware security updates. Because in March, for instance, HP alerted its users about various security vulnerabilities in various of its printers. There's so many millions of printer models out there, some of which were critical, some of which could lead to remote code execution like malware. So you want to install those updates, but it will install dynamic security 
as well, which is really only protecting HP. It's not really protecting you as a user. So it's a bit rubbish. And I think Rory is right, of course. Rory's always right. That we need to change the business model here. We need to stop. No, no, not we. Printers. He said you. you. He said you. <laughs> you got yeah, to fix you're, it. You're the one yeah. with the problem. Exactly. <laughs> we need to send you. all of our printouts to Rory to pass on to his wife <laughs> to print out for us, <laughs> and she can she can fix. There, yeah, we, we've we've solved the problem. Now, why is this news right now? This is news right now because some organisation has taken a class action against. HP. They've already succeeded in America. They've got one and a half million dollars from HP. You can claim up to $150 per person if you had this issue of HP printers. It's now happened in Europe as well, at least Belgium, Italy, Spain, and Portugal. Um, whether other European countries and whether the UK can consider itself to be European or not, I don't know. We'll have to come up to that. But there is now an opportunity to get some money back out of HP if you suffered inconvenience or if you weren't able to print out stuff or if you missed your visit to the cinema because you weren't able to print out your ticket in the appropriate way because HP pushed down an update to you without properly warning you that it would actually be degrading the performance. What assholes even to pay for their mistake like that, right? (laughs) Like what dicks? Yeah, it is kind of sad these class actions. I know, I know, <laughs> I know. It's really tragic if you know you have a problem with your printer, but the idea that you're going to spend years and hire lawyers and, and obsess over your hundred and fifty dollars, it's kind of get a life, or you know, or get a new printer time, isn't it? And the lawyers are doing it out of the goodness of their hearts, of course. Yeah. They're not making any money yeah, out of this. Absolutely uh, not. Absolutely on either not. side. Yeah. It's- <laughs> Yeah, but they should pay, right? Don't you think, Graham? Well, well that's your or, whole that's or, your whole story. I just think having bought probably about a dozen printers over the course of my professional life, I think maybe it's time for me to wake up and try and find some other way of I, I maybe I should just use dirt, dirt and blood. I don't know. I just some other way of transcribing things from my computer because I'm not happy with printers. If anyone has a recommendation on a printer which doesn't have evil cartridges in it, I've seen these ones where you can pour in the ink yourself. Has anyone ever tried one of those? Are these any good? Carol, have you tried one? No. No. Oh, okay. All right. No. No. <sighs> anyway. That's it. I just wanted to have a little rant. You call that a little rant? It's that, that was gone with the wind, for God's sake. He's the most arrogant person ever. Thank you very much for sharing, Graham. Thank you. Rory, what have you got for us this week? Well, I wasn't going to have a rant. I was going to talk about (laughs) health data, uh, Hmm. which is one of my obsessions. Uh, So over the last X years, there's been innumerable attempts to get Britain's health data into a form that can be used for researchers. That's the positive view Hmm. of it anyway have big centralized collections of GP records in particular, uh, and that will help in the search for cures for this, that, and the other. And as someone with a couple of long-term health conditions, I'm all in favor of this. Mm. But obviously, there are big issues. There are huge controversies around uh, the collection of this data, and a lot of worries, uh, justifiable worries, because there's nothing probably more valuable, more secret, more confidential than your health data, that mm. this will be put at risk. But in my view, the whole debate has become unbalanced uh, to the extent that 
any attempt to collect any data is viewed as big brother uh, coming down on you and wanting to flog your data to big pharma or whatever for evil means. Um, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, we, we, we had the, a big thing called care.data in this country about 10 mm -hmm. years ago, which all went belly up because that there was such a scandal over that, uh, uh, about whether people had been informed about whether their data would be collected. We had another go at it a couple of years ago, uh, where something called GPDRS, I think is not, not the same as the European data law, mm. anyway, a scheme to collect GP records. Uh, when that came out again, there was a huge hullabaloo and everybody was advised to opt out of it. Uh, I was frantically telling my friends to opt in because it's, it's, it's important that there should be, uh, it, here's what happens if, if a lot of people opt out of this kind of data collection, mm. that what you get is skewed results from any research if certain right. sections of the population decide that they don't want their data to be used in research then they're underrepresented in in any sort of clinical uh examination of that data so it is quite important because privacy nerds and conspiracy wonks will opt out right yeah yeah people like me yeah i mean obviously if you're going to have good results the, the more data the better now hmm. You can kind of understand these these massive centralized data collection exercises uh, being controversial. Well, what was weird to me was when I came across uh, an organization called the UK Biobank, which had mm. signed up uh, millions of people many years ago to voluntarily hand over their GP data because they wanted to be part of this exercise. But guess what? In many cases, it didn't happen because their GPs had separately uh, had to sign something, had to go through a process, and most of them, frankly, didn't get around to do that. Despite the didn't bother. yeah, about a, uh, only about a quarter of them, uh, all of this happened. Then mm. came the pandemic, yeah, and suddenly all the rules changed. We we knew about this where there'd been running around for years going, have we got permission? Should we do this? Let's have a review. Suddenly, at a stroke, somebody said, yeah. right, the health secretary said, uh, yeah, all that data can be used because there's an urgency with the attempt to find a vaccine. Mm -hmm. So that all happened. Uh, now the pandemic is over, there's a question mark over whether that will continue to be the case mm -hmm. uh, because it was a sort of special, ah. almost like a wartime order. Uh, mm. that that should happen and there's a there's a row about that and don't forget these are people who are not doing this unknowingly people who've signed up and then there was a, a an even better case a couple of uh, a, f a few weeks ago so when the vaccine task force was set up along with it was set up uh, an amazing database of around half a million people who signed up to take part in covid research right many of them agreeing do something that seemed quite risky back then, take the risk of being injected with the virus uh, mm -hmm. to help in the hunt for a vaccine before there was a vaccine effectively taking that risk. And yeah. those people knew what they were doing. And most had also said that they were prepared to take part in research into other conditions. So it was hoped that this thing had been collected, this incredibly valuable resource, half a million people, lots of details about their 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 particular health situation and their backgrounds and so on. Mm. And the thought was, great, this is going to be a valuable resource for years to come. But but what happened 
uh, the National Institute for Health Research, which was in charge of this great database, said uh, a few weeks ago they're effectively closing it down in order to restart it. But that means going through the whole process of getting permission from all those half a million people all over again. So, Rory, why why are they doing that? What was their well, reason? I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing a, 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 a lot of this happening. Mm. I've got friends in the health service, for instance, who said mm. there were all sorts of ridiculous rules that, for instance, stopped patients using hospital Wi-Fi to do, uh, to do calls with with relatives <laughs> stupid things like that and that was immediately swept away um there is a justifiable paranoia in fact about you know data security in hospitals uh, and it's always easier to say no than to say yes and that oh yeah that that appears to be the case uh i mean what the national institute for health research said was that they were going to create a new and better registry to help people with all conditions and they say they they haven't actually set a date for the closure of the existing registry but it would in time be superseded by a new and improved service all those words new better improved it all sounds yes. fine we've never but, heard them before yeah but <laughs> people who've gone through all those complex checks to sign up in the first place being asked to go through them all over again You've got to feel it's likely. Many will feel, well, it's just not worth the bother. And yeah. what was really impressive about the reaction to this decision was uh, the words of Dame Kate Bingham. Now, do you remember her? She was the woman put in charge of the vaccine task force by the government. One of the very mm. few people who came through the whole <laughs> pandemic situation <laughs> with their reputation. She never got a party invite, is that no, what you're saying? Well, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Her, her reputation was massively enhanced. That's why she became a dame. She felt moved to use an unusual word for a dame, the word bollocks. Uh, <laughs> in an interview with The Observer, she said that any talk of the UK becoming a science superpower after she'd heard of the demise of the COVID vaccine research registry, that mm. was bollocks. Um, and it may have been an emotional reaction, but um, I kind of sympathise with her. I mean, she she said it in, in more... Uh, sober way in a tweet, uh, a massive lost opportunity, minimal cost to maintain the registry. Industry would pay for access to recruit UK patients into new clinical trials to test life-saving drugs. All contacts and data lost. We'd hope to expand the registry to help all UK patients with untreated diseases. So she felt there was a lost opportunity. Now, I'm sure the National Institute for Health Research will say, hold on a minute, we're, it's not anything like as bad as she paints it. But mm -hmm. it, it does speak to me of what happened when bureaucrats um, get given back their powers to stop things. And as I say, I have got some sympathy with them because a lot of the fault is down to people like me, the media, um, who are much keener on stories of your health data going amiss, yes. being at risk, than stories about successful uh, medical trials down to the fact that the, this data was available. Normally on our podcast, we are telling stories about things which have gone wrong about data breaches about it's your organizations fault. yes who yeah. haven't properly secured the information and i wondered whether because they're saying we're going to build this new better snazzier database and i thought well, what, what in what way would it be better could it be okay so uh, putting, putting my hat on for a second could it be that they've identified that maybe the database system was initially created in such a fashion that it might contain vulnerabilities or may not be as secure as maybe it should mm. have been 
and they need to rebuild it now. Yes, that's very frustrating. There, there should be a way to easily move people from one database to the right. other, surely. If you just ask them, can you reconfirm you want to be put on the new database rather than having to go through the enrollment process well, again? One would think so, wouldn't one? Um, yeah. All I wonder is whether it, it's, it, it goes back to a system of volunteering from the doctors, from the GPs, who are very busy, yeah. you know, keeping keeping those records up up to date keeping that that detail uh supplied into the database um hmm. my issue though from my experiences with the nhs so doctors gp offices emergency rooms all that i've not been like gobsmacked by the amazing technology they have available to them like well, old it, systems, right? Old systems, USBs in the back of machines just sitting there still happens. And that has made me be one of those people that you don't like, that is like, let me just give you well, as little I, as I can. My, my personal experience has persuaded me in the opposite direction, which is oh. that I have, I, I deal with three branches of the health service. My, my GP, my family doctor, I've been with for 30 odd years. Uh, Moorfields Eye Hospital, where I had a very serious eye condition, which is still monitored, right. and uh, a consultant for for my Parkinson's disease. Yeah, mm. who I've been seeing for about three years. None of them bloody talk to each other. Uh, none of them share <laughs> data. I, I've got all this data, and it's all in separate pools. Here's, yeah. a, here's a, fan, a fantastic example. My eye problem, which was a melanoma behind my left eye, was spotted by a very good high street optometrist with very good machines. And they were the ones who originally sent me to this specialist hospital, one of the best hospitals in the world, Moorfields, to have that sorted. That was all fine. Some years later, the same optometrist spotted another problem that wasn't anything like a serious, but she thought that the consultants and my GP should be alerted to. But she mm. said, she showed me on her fantastic screen, you know, live video effectively of this membrane uh, over my eye, which is a common thing. Uh, and she said, listen, I cannot send this image to your GP or your consultant because I don't have clearance to do it. I could fax it to them. You see? Do, but, but I can't work out a printed out. But yeah, well, That's the problem. Yeah, but, but seriously, it was due to restrictions on the sharing of data across the nhs so what she suggested yeah. i do which is what i did was that i took a picture on my iphone exactly of yeah. this and then took it with me to the doctor um then it's your fault if you lose it yeah, you know, like yeah liability yeah. i mean that has been sorted out now but it, it's not so much antiquated technology there is a problem with antiquated technology but uh excessive caution about the sharing of data which is valuable data which patients many patients in my case were would like to see shared yeah. why should why should my consultant uh or my gp or my optometrist not share data with each other i mean here's another example it turns out there is some obscure connection between parkinson's and ocular melanoma uh, one way or the other i i found this out by googling mm. uh, <laughs> and i had to tell my Parkinson's consultant uh, about this because uh, he didn't know that I got an ocular melanoma, and you know I had to supply that that data because that data was not available to him. Right? Hmm. No, no, no. That's I think that's a very fair point. I'm going to think a lot about this. You've made a very interesting point <laughs> that I've never considered before. I've never thought of it from that point of view before. 
Well, and so, as, as Rory says, certainly if you want to share your health data, what a shame that the powers that be are actually undermining that and preventing your ability or to do Or they're very it. aware the systems need to be reviewed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and and yeah. The, the, I mean, is it part of it is down to the law. For instance, I wrote another story on my uh, my popular health tech Substack, always on, um, <laughs> about <laughs> links in the show notes. A, a registry mm-hmm. that they're trying to create of equipment put inside uh, inside people during mm. operations, um, because sometimes those things go wrong. Uh, and there, there was a big scandal about something called vaginal mesh, which uh, caused a, a lot of lawsuits uh, and a, a lot of unnecessary pain to a lot of people. Uh, and they then realized that they didn't have proper lists of everybody who had this put inside them or had a pacemaker put inside them or an artificial hip that might be the you know, the wrong brand. Uh, and so when they had to do the equivalent of, you know, car park recall, it was very difficult. And then it turned out that all the individual hospitals were keeping a registry of what was put inside each patient, but they were the data controllers and they, they thought that they would get into trouble if they shared that data with other hospitals. So if you moved, um, we're under the care of another hospital, they wouldn't know. Fascinating. Unintended consequences of quite, you know, justifiable uh, data protection policies. I want to think about this long and hard. Carole, what have you got for us this week? Okay, well, put on your hazmat suits, gentlemen, because we're going to enter Les Eaux de Twitter Toilette <laughs> with the key players, Elon Musk. No intro needed. Yes. Twitter itself, yeah. and finally, the black belt sporting Peter, the Mudge Zacko, the Twitter whistleblower. Mm. So, quick background for those out there with a life. <laughs> Elon, the richest person in the world, perhaps uh, bored for a few weeks last spring, agreed to purchase Twitter for the chump change of $44 billion. Were you guys surprised when that happened, or were you thinking, oh, typical Elon? <sighs> I just think he does these sort of things for shits and giggles really doesn't he oh and, um, god yeah that's an expensive shits and giggle though that's an expensive one just likes the attention for the world's most brilliant man he's pretty reactive instinctive <laughs> careless about what he gets up yeah, to i'd agree because you know soon after acting like he was changing his mind about purchasing a particular hoodie he backtracks right saying he wants out because he thinks there's too many bot profiles on Twitter, more than Twitter admitting to. Twitter responded saying there were less than 5% of its users, which they thought were bots. That's exceptionally low. That's my opinion, but whatever. Elon basically is uh, scrambling to back out of the deal, and that was the reason he gave. No, this is really weird. Twitter gets mad and sues Elon in July, basically trying to force him to go through with the purchase. Now, I get that from an investor perspective. but. As an employee who works there, that's got to suck, right? That you're forcing someone to take ownership of a company that they desperately do not want to be to own, right? Like, you, do you really want, like, the person at the helm to be disgruntled, pissed off, angry owner? Well, the alternative, he having gone in and put a floor under the price of Twitter, was that yeah. the stock price would plummet and more, more people would be sacked, I suppose. Mm. Yeah. So they sue Elon. Elon soon countersues saying Twitter misrepresented itself, dragged its feet in discovery, yada, yada, yada. 
Now, meanwhile, enter Peter Mudge Zatko, who was Twitter's head of security from 2020 until he was fired earlier this year. Now, he ended up filing a complaint to the FTC in July. This was after he was fired alleging that Twitter doesn't delete users' data after they deactivate their accounts and had cybersecurity policies that exposed it to hacking and disinformation by state aggressors. You obviously read all about this. Yeah, almost almost as though Twitter had sort of been started up as a very small operation and suddenly become extremely huge and they sort of bolted on things over time and held it together with sellotape and string. Like HP. Um, yeah, well, I'm not not quite like HP. I don't think, I don't think they're charging us every. Uh, if we want to do another thirty tweets or something, they're not asking us to insert some cartridge into our brain. But um, not really a surprise. And Mudge is a respected security researcher. You know, he's one of those sort of rock stars of the. Exactly, he has he has cyber clout, doesn't he? He does. He has cyber clout. Yeah, because yes. uh, to quote the Guardian here. Quote, he was the highest profile member of a famous hacker think tank, uh, The Loft, and the member of the well-known cooperative cult of the Dead Cow. And in that sense, he was a pioneer of hacktivism who spent much of his life trying to educate the world on cybersecurity and has a long list of discovered vulnerabilities to his credit. Have you guys met him? I haven't met him. Have you met him? No, no, no I haven't. Uh, and he sounds like the kind of hire that could either be great or could be a nightmare. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Just like you and me, Graham. <laughs> <laughs> That's why no one hires us. You know how you sometimes work with developers who are like pathologically honest? <laughs> and it, <laughs> <laughs> that's not necessarily a good thing. It's like, well, yes, that is technically 100% true, but can we just do this thing? And, you know, it's... <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, so, so Peter puts this out, and of course, uh, it somehow got into the hands of the Washington Post, and then, like, an unfortunate bout of tummy trouble, it exploded all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Obviously, the CEO, Parag, I don't know how you say his name, how do you say it? Agrawal? Agrawal, I think, yeah. Agrawal, yeah. He responded to uh, Mudge's charges in an email sent to employees, which, of course, was subsequently posted to Twitter by CNN. And then he mm. claimed that Mudge was calling attention to tasks that he was actually accountable for during his tenure. And in the blog post, he uses terms like false narrative, riddled with inconsistencies and inaccuracies, basically not a happy CEO. And, you know, can we blame him, given that his buyer is trying to back out? And at the same time, a high-profile employee of some repute is ringing the cyber alarm bells for everyone to hear. Hmm. And he, again, is in a weird position, isn't he? Because he, as you you put it, is fighting to get a new boss who will definitely sack him. (laughs) Yeah, give him a huge payout. (laughs) That is true, yes. Ah, now, the plot thickens, as you say. (laughs) Well, it does, because Elon, right, when he hears about Mudge's, uh, you know, complaints, frothing at the bit. Rubbing his hands. Right? Ends up asking the judge, pleading with the judge, if he could amend his countersue of Twitter to include Twitter's lack of security testimony. Right. And just last week, Elon's wish was granted. So what do you think about that? So it's kind of, that was never a concern of his. 
But now he feels there's new evidence yeah. to support his pulling out of the Twitter purchase. And presumably he wants Mudge to show up in court. Yes, which I think he is. Right. And to say all these things. And, and his case was pretty weak until this came along, wasn't it? He basically bought it. Did he do any due diligence before he offered <laughs> whatever he offered for it? Doesn't sound <laughs> like it. Um, buyer beware. Um, but now... If he was intentionally misled, as he'll claim, then, you know, all bets are off. Yeah. Now, Elon wanted something else from the judge, too. He wanted to delay the court date, obviously, to build his case even further. But he didn't manage to do that. The trial of Twitter versus Musk is set for October 17th next month. Book your tickets now. Funny you should say that because Slate yesterday published an article yeah. all about what the peanut gallery, so those of us without <laughs> shares in Tesla or Twitter, which outcome should we root for? <laughs> and I want to present you with the options and you guys can each pick one. Oh, okay. Yeah? okay. Or come up with an alternative if you can think of an alternative. All right. So option one, root for a settlement that costs Musk a ton of money, but doesn't make him buy Twitter. So like a negotiated resolution. So Musk mm. could pay Twitter a chunk of cash for every share in the company, but something less than $54.20 that he agreed in April. And Twitter's stock price would go down as Musk got out of the deal, but it wouldn't go to zero. Okay? Yeah, this mm -hmm. is sounding quite attractive so far. Yep. Okay, option two, root for Musk, no. because <laughs> it'd be bad if he owned Twitter. Yes. And the ship has already sailed on people like him being subject to the same laws of the rest of us. So when Musk actually wanted to buy Twitter, he talked about it in terms of making it a maximalist free speech operation. Ugh. Which in practice would mean rolling back content moderation, allowing maybe the worst people in our society to use Twitter to spew all kinds of stuff out. So well, what am I rooting for there? I'm rooting for Musk to ruin Twitter. No, no. No, he, no not to ruin. If he yeah. wins, he doesn't buy it. Oh, he right? doesn't buy it still. Oh, okay. All right. If he wins it, he gets out of the whole, oh, I see. you know, oh, I buying yes, Twitter I deal. But this is already marginally worse than option one, because option one, he doesn't get Twitter and it does cost him some money. <laughs> so, yes, which is, I think, uh, yeah, going to be our preference uh, all the way through, isn't it? Is anything which costs Elon Musk some money? <laughs> I don't know. Option three, root for Twitter. You know, you want Musk to pay up for a company he doesn't want and you're willing to accept what his ownership of the company might mean. Oh, no, we don't, we don't want Musk in charge of Twitter. That'd be horrible. You, you see, you've put it the wrong way around. You've given us the most attractive option first. <laughs> <laughs> well, option four, last one, root for carnage. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps Twitter wins, but Musk refuses to pay. Or Tesla investors worried about Musk being too distracted tank the share price. Or Musk wins but continues to fuck with Twitter out of spite. Uh, no, we're not. We're not that. We're not bad people, are we, Graham? Uh, well, sorry, we're hang on. Let me people. check. No, yes, that's right. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we're going for option one. We're definitely going for option one. Yes, absolutely. The final security-focused thing I have for you that I think is fascinating on this is that. This whole corporate tap dance is going to force Twitter's hand to review and harden its security policies. Like, I can't see how they can get out of it. If they have to go to court, they have to say, well, you know, these things have been addressed. And maybe the big winners are us, the users of Twitter. Thoughts? Well, well um, I'm that rare thing. 
a quite satisfied user of Twitter. Maybe it's because I'm a conservative with a small C. <laughs>、um, I joined it pretty early on in 2007. I like it the way it is. It's annoying from time to time. I don't want an edit button because people will misuse it.、Uh, I don't want to pay for it.、Um, I want things to carry on just as they are, as long as you know I'm allowed to block people who annoy me. Ah,、oh, Graham. I quite like Twitter. I have to say, I, I I don't like any of the other social networks, but I like Twitter. I would like to pay for it. I, f- I feel good about paying for services. I don't like <laughs> services which have. You don't like paying HP. Well, that's true. That's true. But I only use my HP printer once every three months for one page. We're shitting. <laughs> <laughs> The Cybersecurity Insight podcast is a fantastic resource to stay up to date on the latest news and trends. Whether you're a security expert or just want to know more about cybersecurity, you should check it out. Tom Garrison and Camille Morehart host industry leaders to help us learn more about the world of cybersecurity, make it easy to understand today's most important security and technology topics. Recent episodes of Cybersecurity Inside have covered the ethics of AI and machine consciousness, where we're headed with the cloud, how small businesses get access to cybersecurity resources, and so much more. You're going to walk away smarter about cybersecurity and have fun while you're at it. Check out cybersecurityinside.com/smashing to listen to the latest episode. That's cybersecurityinside.com/smashing, or search for Cybersecurity Inside wherever you listen to podcasts. Smashing security listeners, did you know that Bitwarden is the only open source cross-platform password manager that can be used at home, on the go, or at work? Bitwarden's password manager securely stores credentials spanning across personal and business worlds, and every Bitwarden account begins with the creation of a personal vault, which allows you to store all your personal credentials. These are unique and secure passwords for every single account you access, and it's easy to set up. It's easy to use. I honestly love Bitwarden. I use it at home, use it at work, use it on the go. Get started with a free trial of a Teams or enterprise plan at bitwarden.com/smashing, or you can even try it for free across devices as an individual user. Check it out at bitwarden.com/smashing, and thanks to Bitwarden for sponsoring the show. Collide sends employees important, timely, and relevant security recommendations for their Linux, Mac, and Windows devices right inside Slack. Collide is perfect for organisations that care deeply about compliance and security, but don't want to get there by locking down devices to the point where they become unusable. So instead of frustrating your employees. Collide educates them about security and device management while directing them to fix important problems. Sign up today by visiting smashingsecurity.com/collide. That's smashingsecurity.com/k-o-l-i-d-e. Enter your email when prompted, and you will receive a free Collide goodie bag after your trial activates. You can try Collide with all of its features on an unlimited number of devices for free, no credit card required. Try it out at smashingsecurity.com/collide. That's smashingsecurity.com/k-o-l-i-d-e. 
and thanks to Collide for supporting the show. And welcome back. Can you join us at our favourite part of the show? The part of the show that we like to call Pick of the Week. Pick of the Week. Pick of the Week. <laughs> Pick of the Week is the part of the show where everyone chooses something like. It could be a funny story, a book that they've read, a TV show, a movie, a record, a podcast, a website or an app. Whatever they wish. It doesn't have to be security related necessarily. It better not be. Well, my pick of the week this week is slightly security related. Oh, oh. tisk tisk. Now, we are big fans of password managers here on mm-hmm. the Special Security Podcast. We recommend that you use one because then you don't have to remember your password. Something else is securely uh, storing them and it is generating random unique passwords for every website you have to access. But there is a problem. There is a problem which is even if you do have different passwords to different websites, as we'd recommend, and your passwords are suitably gibberish and gobbledygook, you might occasionally come across a web form where it doesn't allow you to copy and paste a password into the form. Maybe you're registering for a website and the HTML on the website is preventing you from actually doing a paste of the password you've already entered mm-hmm. into the field to confirm. I've had yes. that. Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's bloody irritating and it's a Especially when you have 20 character passwords. Tell me about it. You're on the British Gas website, for instance, chosen at random. Not that this has ever been a problem for me. (laughs) And you find out that it won't let you really well enter the password with a copy and paste. Um, And they say, oh, it's for your security. No, it's not for your security. You don't know what you're talking about. So this regularly comes up on Twitter. Uh, People complaining about this sort of thing with different websites. And so I have found the solution, ladies and gentlemen. There is an add-on for your browser. I found versions of it for Firefox and for Chrome. And it's called Don't Fuck With Paste. (laughs) Right. Carole, you'll bleep that appropriately, I presume. Uh, So this add-on stops websites from blocking copy and paste actions on password fields and other input fields where you may have completely legitimate, reasonable requirements to paste something in. Yes, Carole. God, you are so complainy today. He's moany, isn't he? Yes, so moany. Question. How often does this occur? Like, for me, in my life, this was occur maybe once a month, if. That's enough. Because if you have a password which is 34 characters long, including weird symbols and numbers, and is complete gobbledygook, and it's also masked on the website as well, so you've just seen asterisks, it can be rather difficult to type it all in by hand. And you just think, why can't I just paste this into the field? And get on with this. Hmm. I Interesting. Think, I think our listeners will agree with me. And that's why I Well, would I look forward to see what they think about this. <laughs> Install actually. Don't Fuck With Paste, the browser <laughs> add-on, which will help you with those irritating websites. And that is my pick of the week. <laughs> Rory, what's your pick of the week? Well, I, I'm terribly sorry, but mine is to do with security in a roundabout way. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> It is allowed. It is allowed. No, it is not. <laughs> it's otherwise entitled What I Did on My Holiday. Because I'm just back from uh, a three-day city break in Berlin. I love Berlin. There is a background to this in that in 1977, I lived in West Berlin Ooh. at the height of the Cold War for six months wow. before I went to university. I was going to study German. And it was tremendously exciting, you know, to, to have the wall around you, to feel that you were uh, on the front line. And we used to visit the East from time to time. 
And at the weekend, I visited the Old East to go to what I consider probably the best museum in the world. It is the Stasi Museum, the Staatssicherheitsbüro, ah. uh, the State Security uh, Apparatus Museum. Uh, the the Stasi, the East German secret police, who employed a huge number of people to watch over their citizens' every move. Just getting there is almost part of the experience. You go on the S-Bahn, then you get off, you walk past some rather grim East German-type housing blocks, and then you arrive at what was the Stasi headquarters. And it's all perfectly preserved. In particular, the apartments of the boss, Heinrich Milka, are perfectly preserved uh, on a certain floor. And it's all kind of sub-1970s, Mm, Stasi style furniture. I can see it becoming a big thing yeah. at IKEA one year, sort of a retro <laughs> thing. Uh, with, with secret tape recorders inside sort of cabinets because he liked to record everything. And instructions for his secretary. There's a, a, a little kitchen where his breakfast was laid out each morning and a, an actual plan done by one secretary for the other one of where Herr Milka likes his boiled egg to be put on the tray. <laughs> So that is that is the funny side of it. The chilling <laughs> side of it is this complete documentation of all their techniques, um, the buttonhole yeah. cameras, uh, the surveillance surveillance photographs of a post box where they watched and waited uh, for somebody they were suspicious of to come and post their letters so they could go down and uh, open the post box and steam it open. The the surveillance photos taken during raids on people's houses where they were they'd have got a friend. Uh, of theirs who, uh, who happened to be working for the stars, did they but know it to, to tell them, Oh, come around to my place. Uh, meanwhile, the, the Stasi would ransack their flat. Uh, the sheer mm. scale of the operation is absolutely breathtaking. And what it makes you think is what would they have done these days with social media? Yeah. It would have been so much easier for them to get access to all of this information. Um, or, or maybe with your health data. Yeah, Rory. exactly. Have you thought about exactly. that? Exactly. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> on on site, <laughs> on the same site, they have got all. Of, they've got a registry of all of the files that were kept, or and you can actually go there. And I, I've been wanting to do this for some years. I think it's very unlikely that I have a Stasi file, but it's just possible because when I lived in West Berlin. It, the, our trip there was organized by something called the Deutsch Britischer Jugendaustausch, the German British Youth Exchange, which East Germany would have thought of as an evil, yeah. uh, spying huh. operation. And we went across to these from time to time and saw vaguely dissident people and took them some coffee. And I've always wondered whether you know mm. whether i've got a file it's unlikely but i went and filled in a form and they said they'd come back to me in three months uh, so this would be an explosive blog post or even even an essay well no there was a, there was a guy called timothy Gartnash who lived there much longer and lived uh, totally in the east he did go back uh after 1989 and got mm. his file and found out that all of his friends that he'd made in east germany were spying on him wow, wow. Stasi. yeah so uh it's a, anyway it's a fascinating museum which i gotta recommend the most absorbing place you, you can visit sounds brilliant very interesting yeah i feel guilty that i find most of their furniture and interior design like mouth-wateringly gorgeous <laughs> and that is very disturbing <laughs> to me 
Um, so yeah, I'm going to deal with that. <laughs> Have you told your husband where you like your boiled eggs? How you like your eggs in the morning? Boiled egg. Yes. <laughs> yes. Draw him a little chart. Egg here, toast here, coffee there. <laughs> Carol, what's your yeah. pick of the week? I have a wonderful pick of the week, although I think it's rivaled by Rory's this mm. week. But, oh, uh, and this is not hot off the press. No, neither was Rory's. Um, mine's been around since 2020. Uh, but I don't have HBO, so I never saw it. And that is hmm. a wacky and utterly fresh docu-comedy series called How To with John Wilson. Have either of you seen it? No. It's- oh. I haven't, but I heard mention of it the other well, day. Well, this hopefully will get you off your oh, seat. Oh, I'm excited now. Oh, good. Yeah, so it's available on the BBC now. And I would say, don't waste a moment longer. Even stop listening to me. Although, Roy Graham, you stay put. Okay, go watch it now. Um, I was about to say, I'm off. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, so this is a series centered around an explanatory narrative, like an essay, where all the jokes are sort of visually punctuated by like this collage of New York City footage. But like that kind of wacky, crazy stuff you see all the time in New York, but no one ever kind of films. Just all that insane, crazy stuff. And so the essays would be something like how to make small talk or how to split the check or how to appreciate wine or how to be spontaneous. And uh, John Wilson will do some musings on that and have this imagery of the background of just life of New York happening. But it somehow works with the poetry of the narrative. It's just glorious. And it's human and it's tender and it's funny. And it's laugh out loud. Like, and I don't normally do that. Like I feel, you know. So um How to. How to with John Wilson. Is that what it's called? Yep. Yep. How to with John Wilson. I've got to check it out. It would make a killer podcast, just the just the essays on their own. But it even just makes it glorious because you have these New York City moments that underpin the what he says. Anyway, it's ten out of ten. John Wilson, thank you for this treasure. <laughs> there are two seasons available on the BBC at the moment, and you can also find it on HBO. Um, I love it. I'm sure you will too. How to with John Wilson? Links in the show notes. I'll check it out. Well, that just about wraps up the show for this week. Rory, I'm sure lots of our listeners would love to follow you online and maybe check out your writings as well. What's the best way for folks to do that? Well, uh, my Twitter feed is uh, full of inane nonsense, but is uh, also quite compelling. Ruskin147 is my Twitter <laughs> handle. Uh, and my Substack, just search for Substack Rory Kathleen Jones. It's called Always On because that's the, the name of the book I wrote last year, but it's actually about health and technology. Um, you can get it for free. Or you can pay me some money. You don't get much for the money. Mm. To be honest, you don't really get anything for the money. But, you know, it's, 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 it would be a nice oh, gesture. A warm feeling. <laughs> That's what they'll get, at the very least. And you can follow us on Twitter at Smash Insecurity. No G. Twitter and Laust have a G. And we've also got a Smash Insecurity subreddit. And don't forget to ensure you never miss another episode. Follow Smash Insecurity in your favourite podcast apps, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. And huge shout out to this episode's sponsors, Bitwarden, Collide, and the Cybersecurity Inside podcast. And of course, to all our wonderful Patreon community. Thanks to them all, this show is free. For episode show notes, sponsorship information, guest list, and the entire back catalogue of more than 287 episodes, check out smashingsecurity.com. Until next time, cheerio. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
Graham, do you think you're losing your voice because you're grumbling too much? <laughs> like even Rory sees it. Even Rory, and you like Rory, you trust him. What do you think about that? It might be true. It might be true. Maybe. Yes, I trust me, it is. And then what career do you have? It's over. It's all so over. (laughs) (laughs) I could be a Leave Marvin impressionist. I could sing, I was born under a a (laughs) wandering star. (laughs) 